What's up, everyone? Thanks for being back for another episode. Hope you're doing well. Hope these podcasts have been helpful for you. And if they have, I encourage you, share them with a friend, like, follow, post, star, do whatever it is that you do on your particular podcasting platform to help share the news. And feel free to leave a review for some reason. That seems to be helpful when other people see reviews and comments. And that's true on Amazon, and it's true on SoundCloud or iTunes. I don't know what that is about us humans. We like to see that other people care about something, I guess, before we care about it. I don't know how that works, but either way, thank you for your support. If you haven't had a chance yet, you're welcome to look me up on Amazon. And by the way, if you're going to Amazon, you might as well go to smile.amazon and enter in LQVE as your nonprofit to support. More and more people are doing that. And actually, it's kind of starting to add up a little bit. I'm a little bit conflicted about Amazon supporting nonprofits because I know, in a way, it's also it's super helpful for Amazon. It's not like they need more help. On the other hand, it's good for us, so we're just going to go with it. And if you don't have a nonprofit that you're supporting, you can check it out that way and help us. Appreciate it. And you know, with regard to the comments and reviews that I just made a minute ago, as I was just speaking here, my brain was thinking, yeah, actually, because we are mimetic creatures, which is something we talk about a lot on this podcast, because we're imitative, we don't even know what we like until until we see what the other person likes. That's the reason, I guess, the comments and the reviews wind up being so important. This imitative way that we've been, the way in which we've been made is not necessarily wrong. The larger point is to make sure that we're imitating the right kinds of people, the healthy people, the people that we want to imitate. I often think of that when I hear Jesus say things like, I only do what the Father asks me to do. I can't remember if that's a direct quote or not, but the whole idea is that Jesus is living his life in the way that is so congruent with his Father God that he's modeling his life after his heavenly parent so that we can model our life after him. So there's good mimesis, bad mimesis. Now, I'm not suggesting that if you follow after me, that's akin to good mimesis in the way that you would follow after Jesus. I'm just saying there's imitative ways in which we are all made, and you're welcome to participate in all of that. Okay, enough of that, because what I want to do today is recap a little bit. In the West, there tends to be two standard perspectives about us and God. First, the perspective that there's a chasm between us and God, and it needs to be bridged. Jesus is the bridge over that chasm. And if we believe in him, we can return back to the way that it used to be. We can gain our oneness with God. We can regain our oneness, I should say. The second perspective is that the chasm is more of an illusion and that we've never left. We've always been at one with God. So regarding the first statement, I do think that there's some truth to that perspective. But I want to make sure that what I communicate is not in the sense that God ever turned his back or became angry, impatient, or incapable of being around us in our sin. So the chasm isn't because, you know, God has certain standards that we haven't met and therefore He can't be in relationship with us. But I do think that he is in the business of bridging chasms, so to speak, 
I think the truth in the idea is that grace is constantly seeking to bridge whatever it needs to bridge to get to us. We're the ones who created it. We didn't force God's hand. We didn't force God to turn his back, but we've stepped away from him. But meanwhile, all along, even before the death of Jesus on the cross, even before the shedding of blood, God was seeking to bridge our chasms, was offering forgiveness. This is happening throughout the Old Testament. We experience a God who forgives. That's before the death of Jesus. And Jesus himself offers forgiveness throughout the gospel stories, even before he dies. So if you say, well, the only way we have forgiveness and grace and acceptance with God is through the bloodshed of Jesus, what about those instances before Jesus died when he was offering forgiveness? What does that mean? I think it means exactly what it says, and that is that God can forgive. He doesn't need any sacrifice to forgive. Jesus offering forgiveness isn't symbolic. It isn't based on the fact that he can look forward in time and see that he, in fact, is going to be the one that dies for God and his blood's going to cover all of our sins. I don't think that that's the case, though a great many people do. No, I just think God can forgive. And in my mind, if he needs death in order to forgive, it means that there's something bigger than God. It's as if God would have to be reporting to someone. Why else would he need death if, if he can't just say, I forgive you? And I don't think that's a healthy way to look at it. What that does is it sends us down this whole path called penal substitutionary atonement which is a theory about the atonement of Christ. PSA tells us that God needed sacrifice. I'm reminded a bit of my conversation with Dr. James Allison, and I had made the comment to Dr. James that how for me, once my atonement theory got cleared up and I gained a healthier perspective, that is, that I wasn't worried about the blood of Jesus paying God off, and that when I thought of atonement, I thought more of at-one-ment than any kind of transactional thing. But once I got that kind of straight in my head, it led to all kinds of other really great discoveries, including that I found I don't need anyone else to pay any kind of price either. Suddenly I'm free to give grace to everyone, to embrace everyone, including the LGBTQ people who are human beings just like me. Well, it, it's it's very interesting that you say that because um, that was exactly my experience. I was about, I forget how long ago, 10, 15 years ago, maybe, in the early 2000s, I was invited to talk to a chapter of the Presbyterian Churches group um, at the time that was um, exploring, you know, gay equality and changing the Presbyterian Church's rules on the matter. And they asked me um, to talk about this. And I said that I thought that, that that penal substitution basically works by holding together a list of sins that have been paid for. And don't you, don't you damn well alter the list of sins or you're dissing the one who's made the payment. In other words, that the notion of a fixed morality and that was absolutely uh, tied together but that once you start to undo that understanding of atonement, um, then all these other things open up. And th there was a, a, an elderly guy there who it turned out was one of the officials of the university I was speaking, uh, who introduced himself and to all those present and said that he had actually been over the last 20-something years at all these 
annual meetings of the Presbyterian deliberative body. And he said that inevitably he'd come to the conclusion that all the discussion about LGBT matters was a proxy discussion. Mm. And the, the proxy discussion concerning atonement theory, which was the untouchable, which was the third rail. It was the, the untouchable discussion that they couldn't actually have. Yeah. Um, so it was very interesting. But I think I think you're absolutely right, because it's, you know, a whole world falls apart if yeah. a sacrificial structure is being held in place by a sacrificial understanding of of Jesus's death. Yeah. It, it becomes, for me, it becomes, I think, pretty much everything. And it kind of helped me keep my faith. So I'm glad for that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think, and I think there's a huge number, of, and this is what, one of the things which I suspect is what why why Muller is said to have said what he said. Yes, <laughs> which is that he uh, he sees that uh, so many uh, so many evangelicals in particular find a a more wholesome but no less traditional and no less biblical understanding of no all less those orthodox. Texts, no less orthodox. Yeah. Why does scapegoating work? Scapegoating works because when people are very, very troubled by violence, <laughs> in other words, some sense of malaise, that something is wrong, that everything's going to pieces, that order is not holding, once that sense breaks out, and they fix on a person whose fault it is and punish that person by expulsion or killing or whatever, and then find themselves with order restored, it's worked. They have done a limited act of violence, and the result has been everyone at peace, which was exactly Caiaphas's point. <laughs> it is better that one man perish than that the whole nation be destroyed. Uh, Caiaphas had it had it beautifully and um, beautifully succinct. So it contains violence in the sense that both that it is a violent act, killing or expelling someone, and that it holds back. And we use the word contain in, in exactly both those senses. To contain means to have something inside it and to hold it back. Of course, the problem with what Dr. James is talking about is the moment you name violence, you are introducing a type of peace, but it's not a peace that lasts it just recycles the thing so that the whole scapegoating atonement thing can start all over with someone else. Well, that's the, and that's the difficulty, is that the moment you point out that actually peace depends on a violent lie, um, <laughs> uh, it doesn't lead to peace any longer because no one is satisfied with the final result. Everyone says, but you shouldn't have got that person. You should have got this person. No, you shouldn't have got that person. You should have got this person. In other words, the peace doesn't get made. Mm -hmm. It's only when people are blindly uh, committed to doing something and they don't realize how awful it is that it can work. When people say, or, or when they say it may be awful, but it's necessary, and they all agree that it's necessary, then it works. But the moment you say it's not necessary and it doesn't really work or it only really works for a very short time and then you have to do it again the moment you say that then effectively yes you're pulling the plug on the whole operation 
and saying, oh, so now we have to work out how to live together yeah. without these shortcuts to covering up our differences and pretending they're not there by ganging up on someone else, which is much more difficult because that means that everyone has to do that. <laughs> One of the great traps of PSA, of this understanding of atonement, is that it requires people to believe in a particular formulaic approach to God. And if it does, it keeps us from having to do the work of then living together, because if we can just trust in the sacrifice, then everything is okay. But if we have to actually understand that God doesn't need a sacrifice, it requires us to do more than just put all of our emphasis on the transactional moment that happened at the cross. I hope you understand what I'm trying to say, which moves us back into what Dr. James is trying to say, and that is that we got to figure out how to be together and not take the shortcut, just the transactional fix. If not, it's possible that church, uh, that the church's role becomes one of managing a correct understanding of the sacrifice, which just reinforces our separation from God. It reinforces the correct things that we have to do to get right. And if others don't do it, if we don't do it, then we're wrong. And if others don't do it, they're wrong. We got to pray the prayer. We got to believe the thing. We got to do the thing. And the church's primary job becomes one of managing sin and correct thoughts about life and afterlife. Oh, and when others are wrong, well, it gives us freedom to scapegoat them, which just drove us further and drives us further into our reliance upon sacrifice. It's the gift that keeps on giving. So remember, we're framing this episode around the Western's view of God and of us. And the first view says that, you know, we cause this bridge, we, we force God to turn his back on us, and we got to figure out a way to get back to that. I don't agree with that necessarily. Again, sliver of truth, but overall, I think there's some real misguided thoughts there. So I happen to have more affinity for the second position. The second position has to do with the fact that this chasm is an illusion. And really, we've always been at one with God. We've always been with God. For where in the world could we even go to separate ourselves from love? Love is always with us. Love is patient. However, I have come to believe that the second position has problems as well. The idea that we're already at one with God, there's a problem inherent with that thinking. And it has to do with the way our context has defined oneness, or to use a synonymous term, wholeness, as in, we don't have any problems. We have nothing to work on. We don't need to overcome anything. It's all perfect, tied up. Oh, what's the word? It reminds me of something clean and sterile. We've defined this idea with terms like being whole, complete, fixed, sealed, secure, saved, lots of other terms like that that have emerged out of the English-speaking Christian world. And if that's the case, then I'm a bit suspicious because these terms also can be easily assimilated into a sacrifice-driven culture context. And for me, I'm just 
I'm just not down with the sacrifice any longer. I don't think that grace requires anything. I think it just loves all of us. But I do think we are at one. I do think that the chasms are an illusion. The deal is, I think that it's important how we define this oneness. And oneness with God is not what I think we have tended to think that it was. That is, that all of our problems are cleared up. Oneness with God means that we are at one with the capital O, one, who in a sense is not even one with himself or herself or itself. What Jesus taught us at the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is that the one has been forsaken. Love itself has been broken. The completeness of that great subjective other has been made incomplete. And so wrapped up in the middle of all of this is the texture of the tohu wabohu, the life and the anti-life, the good and the bad, the promise along with the vulnerability. To be at one with all of that doesn't leave us feeling very secure. And the movement of so much religion is to gain security. But the truth is, everything is insecure. Except God is with us. So what is the point? If we're already at one, why did God show up? <laughs> he showed up in Jesus to show us this great truth. That we are already at one. We needed someone to step into our violent, victimary mechanism to show us how we've been having a, a kind of a pseudo-completeness. We needed a real completeness. A completeness that was, in effect, incomplete. To repent of our ways. Repent is the Greek word metanoia. It means to change your mind. To change your mind about what? About who you are and who God is. Rene Girard says something like, a good theory about humanity must be based on a good theory about God. So to repent means to change our mind about what God needs. He doesn't need sacrifice. When the scapegoating mechanism is revealed for what it is, it shows us how brilliant it is. Actually, if you go back as, as recently, I mean, as far as the 17th century, and this is something brought out by a, an historian friend of mine, um, within a very short time of the uh, conquest of what's now Mexico uh, by the Spaniards, um, and the explaining to them that their sacrificial system was wrong, uh, because of the sacrificing of people, the, the victim, basically the, the victim was innocent. Uh, they very quickly uh, took up using Christianity's arguments themselves against uh, the colonizers. Um, oh, interesting, yeah. In other words, part of the success of the message is precisely <laughs> yes. that it undermines itself. Um, those of us who pointed out are very frequently pointing it out from a position of privilege, authority, etc., etc., and need to be knocked off our horses by, by people who are saying, oh, well, in that case, <laughs> you're doing the same to me. Exactly, um, yeah. Um, so I think that, that uh, Renee's point is a, is a very good one. Um, wherever the gospel is preached, both the fact that it is true 
and the fact that part of its truth can then be used as an enemy against it <laughs> yeah. is brought out very quickly. Repentance is being honest about yourself and honest about the system that we've all created, that we live in, and that we participate in when it's beneficial to us. It's seeing the line dividing evil and good in our own heart as being really blurry and gray. It's recognizing that we give ourselves grace sometimes, but we, we refuse to give grace to others. We see them as the ones who are evil. Repentance is recognizing that all of this is most likely a projection of our own stuff onto them, which then gives us license to punish them. In my own life, I have been surprised, well, but not surprised because one of the downfalls about being in a position that I'm in is that people often see me, they don't say it this way, but people often see religious leaders as symbolic of God, and then their frustrations at God come out onto their religious leaders. So I was surprised, but I guess not surprised, at how angry Christians got at me for for suggesting that being gay isn't really about morality, that it's really an amoral subject. The gay subject ramped up the level of indignation and disgust that was projected onto me. It took it to a whole nother level. But what's going on there? The truth is people are writing me off as completely bad, as evil. It allows them to not have to work through the issues themselves. It's all a part of the scapegoating atonement process. They're living by fear. But what am I going to say? I've also been guilty of living by fear at times in my life as well. Calling out victimization gives us something to fight against. It's a quick fix to our psyche. It's a shortcut to being. But meanwhile, real being, that takes longer. So to repent means to change our mind about the quick transactional fix of being at one with the God who fills us up to the point where we don't need anything else, where we experience no more issues. It's repenting of that whole system and recognizing we don't need to accept God into our heart. We need to accept that we've been accepted all the way along, as Paul Tillich puts it. So the capital O one, that is God, took violent sacrifice into himself rather than inflicting it upon others, which reveals vulnerability and results in being wounded. God has been wounded. So yes, in keeping with the two perspectives that we're trying to talk about in this episode, separation is an illusion. But then again, being at one with the capital O1, that's costly. I can only say that yes, we are complete. But that completeness itself is incomplete. Yes, we are made perfect. But love's perfection is willingness to live with imperfection. And I'm going down a Hegelian path, a John Caputo path, and others. When I say, yes, we are at one, but the one is not at one with itself. It seems to me that when Christ cries out on the cross about forsakenness, he's revealing truth. That is, that love is vulnerable. Love is wounded. As Peter Rollins said, brokenness is folded into the heart of God. My friend, you never really get that wholeness that the American consumerism preaches, that the American Christianity preaches. 
you're constantly caught up in the insecurity of love. To try to get Jesus into your heart in such a way that makes you whole so that God then loves you is a type of transactional put the coin in the vending machine to get out the thing that you want to make you whole, to make you complete. It doesn't work that way. You never really get that kind of wholeness. What you really get as a human being is to be constantly caught up in the insecurity of love, though weirdly, the insecurity itself becomes hope, because if nothing is secure, that means that not even death is secure. And in the end, love wins. two perspectives from the mindset of the Christian West. Number one, we're separate from God. We got to find our way back. As I said, I don't exactly agree. I think we've always been with God. God's always been with us. There's a way to read the Bible that might make you think that we've been separate. I just think it's the unhealthy way to read it. Although if you agree with me, I will say, be careful who you share this with. It can make a lot of people upset. The second perspective, We've always been at one with God. The separation is just an illusion. I tend to agree with this perspective. However, I reserve room to redefine what it means to be at one with God. Because the one isn't at one with itself. At least I don't think. Thanks for spending time to think through these things with me today. I hope you're doing well. And I hope you're choosing peace in every instance of your life. God bless. (laughs) 